This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Sound the gifting panic alarm. We've all been there. You need to find the perfect gift. You have absolutely zero ideas and you don't know where to start. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode takes the stress out of gifting so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. Just answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like, and Gift Mode gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Imagine pages of artisan espresso mugs for the coffee connoisseur in your life. Or for the pickleballer, customized paddle covers in every shade imaginable. Etsy's got you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Welcome to the Holiday Special from CBS News Radio. I'm Gil Gross. Santa Claus, St. Nicholas. At a time when we have locks on the door, Wi-Fi-enabled security devices, and what have you, we openly welcome this man into our homes, even though we really don't know that much about him. So who is he? Who was he? Where did he come from? Are Santa Claus and St. Nicholas the same guy? And if so, how did that happen? And who was St. Nicholas anyway? Now, one thing first, should you have kids in the car? Kids, though you know perfectly well who Santa or St. Nicholas is, when most people become adults, they lose the ability to take things on faith, much as they lose the ability to become anything but annoying in a bouncy house at your birthday party. So this interview is to cater to grown-ups need to know something more than to believe in something. This may even happen to you someday, so be prepared. That all said... Where did Santa come from and who was St. Nicholas? Joining me is Dr. Adam C. English, Chair of the Department of Christian Studies and Professor of Christian Theology and Philosophy at Campbell University and author of The Saint Who Would Be Santa Claus, The True Life and Trials of St. Nicholas of Myra. It's good to have you with us. How are you? Thank you for having me and Merry Christmas. Uh, Merry Christmas. Let's start with St. Nicholas, which will be the focus of this particular interview. We know very little about him historically. Who was he? When did he live? St. Nicholas lived in the uh, early 300s. And, uh, you know, although we in the United States know very little about him, uh, there's actually a good bit that we can know about him from the historical record as uh, about his life and about what he did and who he became. We're more focused on Santa Claus here and that's sort of a shame because we miss out on a, a rich personality from history. And let's talk about him. I mean, you you found out a ton about him by traveling almost all over the world. The first written records of his even existing come a couple of hundred years after St. Nicholas lived. 
That's right. Uh, so we don't have anything in his own writing or, or in his own hand. Uh, but we have various records that, uh, using some historical tools, we can sort of verify different pieces of a story. And then a lot more legend has been added on to it. Uh, but Nicholas lived at a really important turning point in history. Uh, he was a, a Christian pastor of his area there in Myra on the southern coast of Turkey. And uh, he was at a moment when uh, Christianity was going from uh, a persecuted minority religion to one that had the support of the empire, the Roman Empire behind it. So it was just a pivotal turning point in history. And uh, Nicholas became a, uh, like I say, a pastor there in, in the town of Myra, or bishop as they would have called him at that time. And like I say, did a number of works that we would call generous, sort of Christmassy, um, Santa Claus-like uh, gift giving, but also uh, played the role of a uh, someone interested in social justice type issues, interested in um, his town and, and helping people out of uh, dire situations. And so, you know, there's a lot that we could add to the story of Christmas by just learning a little bit about St. Nicholas in his own time. Now, I said earlier that we don't have much in the way or really anything in the way of you know, writing from him, but that's true of lots of figures from that point in history. It's it's true of Jesus. It's true of Socrates. It's true of a lot of people. But one of the main arguments you found for his truly being somebody who was noteworthy is that right after his life, Nicholas, which had not been a popular name, suddenly just shows up everywhere. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Nicholas in Greek means victory of the people, and he certainly was a people's champion. Uh, like I said, we know a story about him um, as a young man who makes a nighttime visit uh, to give gifts of, of gold to a family that's in distress and to, uh, to, to help relieve their poverty. And so he stops by in the middle of the night and throws a bag of gold through the window that's found in the morning and used as a dowry uh, so that one of the, the girls that are in distress might be able to marry out of her condition. Uh, but beyond that, again, he worked on behalf of his city. Uh, one story we know about him is that uh, he bartered with a grain ship that had come into port uh, to, to get grain for the city that was experiencing a famine. And, you know, that kind of story shows that he was interested in, uh, again, more than just gift giving, but in uh, helping the people out in his community, which is you know, again, a message that uh, I think resonates with this time of year when people are are looking for ways to be generous and ways to, uh, you know, contribute to their communities. Adam, let's go back to that gift giving thing, because I don't want to just pass over that story, because that is a, a very striking story about the gold that he delivers to get these three women out of possible bondage. These are three women who were headed for slavery, and he shows up with these bags of gold so they have a dowry so they can be married and they're not going to be enslaved. It's a fascinating and unique story in so many ways. It not only sets up the gift-giving thing from St. Nicholas, but it's also a story of, of a man who, you know, saves three young women, we don't have a lot of stories like that from that from that era. 
uh, you know, the gifts and everything. And it's also one of the reasons why he is sainted. It's about keeping people from being enslaved. You know, it's not about the usual saint story from those days about a person dying in some horrifying manner on behalf of their faith, which is the way many early Christians become saints. This is a very unique story. What's beautiful about it is that Nicholas is doing something that any of us could do. Uh, he learns of this family that's in distress, and they're considering, as you say, selling off um, the children, the daughters, one by one, into slavery, into some kind of prostitution. And Nicholas decides to intervene, again, not with a miraculous act, but with a, a gift of charity. He has received money from his inheritance. Uh, his his parents had recently died in, in a, a plague that had gone through the area. And he decides to act on that and to help this man out. He doesn't want credit for it. So he goes in the middle of the night uh, to deliver his gift. And when he sees how the man uses the gift to, to help the daughter, one of the daughters marry, marry out of her condition, he returns a second and then a third time with it. And you can see in there the origins of the Santa Claus story. As this story gets told and retold, uh, people will add different uh, dimensions to it. In one version, Nicholas shows up and the windows are locked. And so he drops the money down the chimney where it lands in a stocking that one of the girls has hung by the fire to dry. And so already there you can see the elements of a, a nighttime visitor, a mysterious gift giver, uh, and you know coming into the house or dropping presents down the chimney. It's, it's fast. Now, there are other stories about St. Nicholas that are popular about him. There's There's one about putting chopped up murdered boys back together and bringing them back to life. And there's uh, several stories about him saving sailors imperiled at sea. But this one about the three young women showing up in the middle of the night, you know, unannounced with a gift that saves their futures is really, I guess, where the St. Nicholas Santa Claus connection starts. That's exactly right. It absolutely is. But as you say, Nicholas was an extremely popular uh, saint and figure in Europe uh, for hundreds and hundreds of years, you know, before any talk of Santa Claus. And he was popular for a lot of these other stories that you mentioned. One of the earliest, very early stories that we know about him involves Nicholas coming to the rescue of some men who are about to be executed in the middle of town, they've been falsely accused and the judge had been bribed to condemn them to death. And Nicholas intervenes, uh, stepping into the city plaza and halting the execution. So in some uh, you know, images and statues that you will see of Nicholas, he's holding a sword in his hand, which is a very un-Santa Claus-like thing to have. But it's referencing that sto story when he, he grabs the sword of the executioner and, and pulls it away. Uh, so it's those kind of stories that really stand out and, and give a new depth or richness to this character. We'll have more from Adam English and the story of St. Nicholas coming up right here on the holiday special from CBS News Radio. Welcome back to the holiday special from CBS News Radio. I'm Gil Gross, and we've been talking with Professor Adam English about the story of the real St. Nicholas. Now, you were talking about him being the saint of Myra, and in fact, that's in the title of your book, The Saint Who Would Be Santa Claus, The True Life and Trials of St. Nicholas of Myra. And we'll get back to Myra in a second, but he 
Well, I love this line. I saw one interview with you where you said, he's mostly buried in Barry, Italy. <laughs> Where's the rest of him and why? That's right. Uh, in the uh, in 1087, his body was exhumed and removed to Bari, Italy, which is on the eastern coast of Italy, down near the heel of the boot. Uh, but, you know, the sailors who grabbed him, uh, you know, grabbed him in haste. And so he left some bones behind. The Venetians came along and scooped up the rest. So there are some fragments at a church in Venice as well. Uh, but he has been removed from his original burial place there in Myra, although uh, you know, again, the church where he was buried still exists, and it's still a very popular tourist destination for, uh, you know, for tourists, especially Russian tourists who who love to stop by the church and see the tomb. Okay, now if you go to that tomb where he mostly is now in Italy, which is under a church built around 1100, there's no Santa Claus representations at all. In fact, you'll probably mainly bump into Russian tourists because his popularity in Russia, having nothing to do with Santa survived even communism. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, and Nicholas, it, we, even, even in pop culture, we think of Nicholas as a very Russian-sounding name, even today, a very extremely popular uh, saint, like you say, surviving communism, surviving uh, even Christianity in some sense. Um, you know, there's an old saying that even if we lose God, we'll still have Nicholas, uh, that they say in Russia. And so you're right, he's an extremely popular saint there. And um, so tourists love to come in and pay the respects and, and still think about him. And so there, there, you, if you go into Russia, there's just St. Nicholas churches everywhere and St. Nicholas icons and figures everywhere that, as you say, have nothing to do with Santa Claus. And um, the Russians coming to America might scratch their heads a little bit if they saw Santa Claus here. Okay, that brings us to a facet of St. Nicholas that will be news to most of our listeners here in the United States even the ones who have heard of the actual St. Nicholas, which is the miracle, there's, there's usually a miracle attached to saints, the miracle of the myrrh, which I find absolutely fascinating. Until I looked into this, I, had, I, I knew nothing about this. And what is that? Yeah, it is definitely something that would be very foreign to our Amer American audiences. Um, Nicholas's tomb uh, leaked uh, a liquid. And so... Um, Pilgrims would come and they would collect this, this holy water, or they called it an oil or a myrrh, uh, you know, and use it kind of as a, a holy water. When his bones were transferred to Italy, uh, to Bari, the, the tomb continued to again leak this, this holy water. And so once a year on May the 9th in Italy, um, they will open up the tomb and collect that myrrh, uh, that oil, and then um, kind of distribute it to, to the people who want who, who come and visit the tomb. And so, yeah, it's still something they collect to this day and it's still considered holy. And, um, you know, they, uh, the University of Bari there in Italy did a, uh, you know, a chemical analysis of it. And it turns out it's just water that uh, may have just like condensed somehow in the uh, in the tomb per se. But again, it has this holy property for people that go and visit. Well, while we're talking about uh, things that are you know, liquid, there's a story you tell in the book that is popular about him, probably unknown in the United States, but very popular about St. Nicholas elsewhere, that uh, he and the other saints were passing around drinks in heaven. Yeah, <laughs> right. Uh, it goes to Nicholas's work ethic, uh, that uh, Nicholas hanging out with his saintly friends in heaven uh, keeps nodding off 
And, you know, they sort of joke with him about that. He can't keep awake. And he says, well, you know, I've been busy. I'm out saving people. I'm out working, working the highways and the byways and the uh, out there on the ocean helping sailors. And so Nicholas was always seen as kind of a working class saint. You know, this is the person that you could relate to in some ways as somebody that uh, was a little bit more down to earth. And, and sometimes, you know, we think about our heroes and our, you know, saints are oftentimes heroes and heroes are oftentimes hard to relate to. You know, these people that have done amazing things, uh, you know, astonishing things, things we could never dream of accomplishing. But Nicholas always struck people as just a regular type of guy, somebody you could relate to, just a hard worker. And I think some of it goes back to that story we mentioned right at the beginning of somebody uh, who is helping out the people in his community by simply meeting their basic needs, not performing some grand miracle or some uh, you know, grand gesture, but doing something that any of us could do. We see a neighbor in need, we could, uh, we could go out and help. And, and so I think Nicholas kind of has that sort of attraction to people as just a, the ordinary Joe type saint. Very much so. Uh, by the way, Myra is now known as Demre, D-E-M-R-E in Turkey. If you ever want to go there and see the place where he fed the people, saved people from execution and all of that, we covered how he becomes associated with gift giving. There came in the Middle Ages a custom of giving gifts on the evening of December 6th, which was the name day for St. Nicholas. And apparently, from what I understand, it was Martin Luther who then fought to move this custom to Christmas because he thought gift giving should call the attention of children to the life of Christ rather than any particular saint. But apparently Nicholas was so popular that even when this was gift-giving custom for kids was moved to Christmas, uh, people still associated it with St. Nicholas. You know, that's right. Uh, you, your listeners may be familiar with the character of Martin Luther, um, the f- famous founder of the Reformation in the 1500s. And, he, you know, Martin Luther was married. He had children. He adopted children. You know, he loved kids. And he knew that kids uh, wanted presents at this time of the year, and he didn't want to rob them of the joy of receiving something at Christmas time, but he also wanted to direct their attention away from, you know, St. Nicholas as the gift giver and towards, you know, the baby Jesus Christ who was born at Christmas. And so, you know, he said, you know, instead of saying that the gifts come from Nicholas, instead, let's say that the gifts come from the infant Jesus, the Christ child. And in German, the Christ child is the Christkindl. Uh, and so if you just say that five times fast in your mouth, you know, Chris Kendall, you get you come out with Chris Kringle, uh, which, of course, then is just another name for, the, uh, you know, for St. Nicholas or Santa Claus. You know, the problem was that it's it's a good idea. You know, it may be good theologically to say the the gifts come from the Christ child. But practically, how does a infant baby Jesus give gifts? And so it just never really worked. Um, and so instead, let's focus on the Chris Kindle, the, uh, the gift giver. And so in Germany today, that, that figure is oftentimes represented as an angel, uh, sometimes a, you know, by a female in angelic clothing as the gift giver. You know, but it just never really took off. It, and it certainly didn't replace Nicholas as the primary gift giver. 
No, we get Chris Kringle that way, and the Dutch version of saying St. Nicholas, the Dutch is Sinterklaas, so there you get Santa Claus, so now we see the connection from St. Nicholas to Chris Kringle and to Santa Claus, and uh, bit by bit over the years, with an assist from the popularity of the poem The Night Before Christmas, and I I guess several greeting card companies, we get to where we are today. Yeah, that's right. Um, You know, of course, the Santa Claus traditions... Uh, for the 24th and 25th of December are very much an American production. Um, and, it, and it looks differently in Europe even today uh, than it does here in the United States. Um, that really comes about in the early 1800s. And it's a, a product of, of New York City. Uh, at that time, the early 1800s, New York City, and some prominent figures like Washington Irving, the writer, and John Pintard and others, are looking for heritage, They're looking for ways to give New York City some, you know, some roots. And they reach back to the Dutch heritage. And part of the Dutch heritage is the celebration of St. Nicholas Day and St. Nicholas, the center clause, as you mentioned. And so they import him in and, and kind of make him a, a bigger character, but they're going to transform him into this new American context. And so he'll lose some of the ecclesiastical garb that is is his priestly robes. Uh, He no longer looks like a churchly bishop, uh, but instead he he looks more like a, you know, a magical elf uh, from the North Pole. And then, like you say, the the night before Christmas poem uh, and then other drawings and representations of him quickly sort of transform him into this this gift bringer who is now, again, a magical creature you know, from the North that comes to us instead of a, you know, a Christian bishop um, who is dour and sour and uh, here to judge and um, pars out gifts and punishments as people deserve. It is a fascinating backstory. It's, and your book brings back St. Nicholas as a figure of interest in and of himself and apart from the Santa Claus connection. Dr. Adam C. English is chair of the Department of Christian Studies and professor of Christian theology and philosophy at Campbell University. His book is The Saint Who Would Be Santa Claus, The True Life and Trials of St. Nicholas of Myra. Thank you for kind of fleshing out this figure. And uh, thank you for being with us and happy holidays to you. Thank you and happy holidays to you as well. This is the holiday special from CBS News Radio. When we say happy holidays these days, we allow for the fact that somebody might be celebrating anything. Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, Festivus. Wait, what? Well, those of you who watched Seinfeld already know. Festivus was first revealed in an episode that, as usual, had the gang at the diner as Jerry watched Elaine grab a greeting card away from George. Dear son, happy Festivus? What is Festivus? It's nothing. It's nothing. When George was growing Jerry, up, no. his father no. hated all the commercial and religious aspects of Christmas, yeah. so he made up his own holiday. Oh, and another piece of the puzzle falls into place. All right. And instead of a tree, didn't your father put up an aluminum pole? Oh, Jerry, no. stop it. And then weren't there feats of strength that always ended up with you crying? And as usual on Seinfeld, when George was horribly embarrassed, Jerry and Elaine were very happy. Later, it was left to George's dad to explain to the always befuddled Kramer just how Festivus came to be. Many Christmases ago, I went to buy a doll for my son. I reached for the last one they had, but so did another man. 
As I rained blows upon him, I realized there had to be another way. What happened to the doll? It was destroyed. But out of that, a new holiday was born. A Festivus for the rest of us. Now, when the Seinfeld writer put this in that episode, it was really just filler for a show about Kramer going on strike at the bagel store. One of the guys in the writer's room, Dan O'Keefe, was explaining how back in 1966 his dad came up with this holiday, but he was reluctant to stick it in this episode he was writing because, as he put it, he considered it the family disgrace born out of alcohol and mental illness and reacting to pressure from articles in the Reader's Digest about how Christmas must be celebrated. Seinfeld's producers convinced O'Keefe it was great, in part because they believed the best of the weirdest things they put in the shows came from real life, not stuff that they made up. Like the things George's dad, played by Jerry Stiller, explained to Kramer about how a Festivus celebration would go. And at the Festivus dinner, you gather your family around and tell them all the ways they have disappointed you over the past year. And is there a tree? No, instead there's a pole. Requires no decoration. I find tinsel distracting. What was a bit to fill an episode with a subplot caught on. It's amazing how much this has caught on, considering the fact that the holiday, celebrated on December 23rd, or not, if you prefer, is pretty difficult to explain. This was George trying to explain it to Kruger, his boss at Kruger Industrial Smoothing. I, I gave out the fake card because um, I don't really celebrate Christmas. I, um, I celebrate Festivus. Feminist. Festivus. Festivus. And uh, I was afraid that I would be persecuted for my beliefs. They drove my family out of Bayside, sir. Are you making all this up, too? Oh, no, sir. Festivus is all too real, and I could prove it if I have to. Now, the interesting thing about Festivus having caught on is that it always ends badly and should only be taken on if you are deeply committed to embarrassment and humiliation, not generally considered the spirit of the season. For instance, this is how George's dinner with his friends and boss went at his dad's house in the first Festivus celebration that anyone other than the O'Keefe family had ever seen. The tradition of Festivus begins with the airing of grievances. I got a lot of problems with you people. Now, you're going to hear about it. You, Kroger. My son tells me your company stinks. Oh, God. Why? You'll get yours in a minute. Kruger, you couldn't smooth a silk sheet if you had a hot date with a babe. I lost my train of thought. <laughs> and now, as Festivus rolls on, we come to the feats of strength. Not the feats of strength. Until you pin me, George, Festivus is not over. Oh, please. Somebody stop this. Let's rumble! <laughs> yes, there's nothing that says the holidays like getting wrestled to the floor by your own dad in front of your boss and your best friends. However, wherever people don't want to take things too seriously, Festivus reigns supreme. In several states, people have managed to get Festivus poles put next to mangers and menorahs in state capitals, including one in Florida that was made entirely of aluminum beer cans. The funny thing about the pole is that the O'Keefe family never actually used one. They used something. In a CNN interview, Dan O'Keefe revealed just what it was. Yeah, the real symbol of the holiday was a clock my dad put in a bag and nailed to the wall every year. I don't know why. I don't know what it means. He would never tell me. He would always say, that's not for you to know. Now, considering all that has happened since, O'Keefe must have known he was writing a classic TV show and starting a movement, right? Wrong. 
very wrong. Actually, I thought that it was going to be the most forgettable part of it that was going to be cut out for syndication. There was five <laughs> stories in that episode, and that was the one that I didn't want in there, and I really had no hope for. And uh, Alec Berg and Jeff Schaefer, the other co-writers of the episode, they, they contributed some stuff that was arguably funnier, and, uh, but this is the one that seems to have metastasized through American culture. So look, if your holiday season lacks feats of strength, airing of grievances, an aluminum pole, or a clock nailed to a bag in the wall, and you need it all to end with everyone running for the exits to escape, Festivus may be just what you're looking for, as George's dad said. We had some good times. Welcome back to the Holiday Special from CBS News Radio. I'm Gil Gross. Nothing says Christmas like Christmas music. Actually, nothing says Thanksgiving like Christmas music or now Halloween. Radio stations start playing Christmas music earlier and earlier every year. Probably by next year, they'll start on Labor Day and you'll stop wearing white and you'll start playing All I Want for Christmas is You. But why is that? Polls show, though, the country is as spiritual as ever. People day to day are less religious. And yet, Christmas songs are more popular than ever. Joe Bennett's a professor of musicology at the Berkeley School of Music. It's so good to have you with us. What is going on here? I mean, popular music is generally about, you know, people falling in and out of love, that sort of thing. There are a few Christmas holiday songs about that. But for the most part, Christmas music isn't about any of that. Right. There is. It has its strange. It, it has a strange logic of its own, doesn't it? Christmas music. The, it has lyric themes that we are happy to go back to every December or, as you say, increasingly every November. And uh, and yet the rest of the year, we just want the same old stuff that we've always wanted out of pop. You know, falling in love and dancing is the main two the main two uh, themes. But at Christmas music, all bets are off. We want something different out of our pop. Yeah, the interesting thing is that though it is a religious holiday, most Christmas songs are not religious. That, of course, wasn't always the case. And of course, especially in classical music, Christmas music is very specifically religious. Popular songs are about snow and getting presents and they're loved even in parts of the country where you never see snow and by people who aren't even Christian. Well, right. And I, I think that's possibly due to, you know, an increasingly secularized society. Uh, you know, America particularly is, is a country of many cultures and, and religions. And uh, so I think uh, it's certainly true that we see this in the Christmas repertoire. There's very little of it that deals with the Christian faith or the nativity story that Christians tell each other. It's more about, um, well, holiday music. Uh, most cultures have some kind of a winter festival, regardless of religion. And I think this is partly, like I say, evidence of the way society has become perhaps less religious generally, partly as a result of it becoming more multicultural and inclusive, and partly simply songwriters want to have a hit. So they want to appeal to the greatest number of people possible, regardless of faith, culture, or, 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 or no belief at all. What's interesting is both how these songs hold up as songs and as musical style. People would not be caught dead these days listening to, say, you know, Bing Crosby singing anything other than White Christmas. We'll put White Christmas on repeat. It's just love no matter that the era of his style of singing or this style of writing that kind of song is long past, still works. Yes, and White Christmas, which is from 1942, of course, you know, how many other songs from 1942 do we still have in annual rotation on Spotify? You know, it's a very small number. And as you say, Bing Crosby was a, a singer of his time. He had a very specific crooner style 
that developed in the 1930s as a result of him being one of the first singers to sing quite low in volume and very close to the microphone, which is that famous crooner sound that we associate with that era. But White Christmas, it's it's an extraordinary song. You know, I, I, I use it in my songwriting classes with my students at Berkeley, and we, we do a lot of analysis of, of it and actually some other Bing Crosby repertoire. It, it's, it's 16 bars long. There's almost nothing to it at all. And yet it gets so much into that tiny lyric and bar count. You know, it has imagery, it has rhyme scheme, it has a beautiful melodic rhythm to it. And it gets all that stuff done in, you know, about a minute. And then the rest is all repeats. Yeah. And it's amazing that that simple thing is what's lasted from Bing Crosby. Crosby actually started out as a true jazz singer, scatting, doing very complex rhythms and things. Those songs are not what he's remembered for at all anymore. And yeah, the lyrics to these songs generally aren't complex either. Mel Torme's Christmas song, which Nat King Cole had a big hit with, which you hear every year on the radio, Spotify, and everywhere else, is just sort of a shopping list of images. And many other songs are just variations of, hey, it's snowing. Right. And uh, and actually, the lyric themes are fairly consistent in Christmas songs over decades. Uh, so a couple of years back, I did an analysis of the top 200 Christmas songs that were streaming at that, at that point in the UK. And um, of those, of that 278, had some kind of Christmas or holiday theme. And I found that, excluding the instrumentals, they broke down into eight broad lyric themes, uh, the, the main one was home, themes of home. That's family, open fires, gifts under the tree, and so on. Uh, being in love at Christmas, that special someone. Falling out of love at Christmas, you know, dumped and lonely. Lots of Christmas songs about loneliness. Partying, dancing and mistletoe, and so on. Uh, a lot of Santa-themed songs. Um, Snow-related, as you say, weather themes and weather-based imagery. And universal concepts of peace on earth. Very occasionally, there are what you might call Christian songs that tell the the versions of the nativity story, but not so much in recent decades. You know, songs like A Child is Born and Mary's Boy Child are very much of their time. And I think it's been quite interesting as as a musicologist who sort of analyzes these trends in music to watch Christmas song or what might now call holiday song themes track the increased secularization and multicultural nature of our society. Christmas songs have become more inclusive in recent decades, I suggest. Although some of those timeless hits do exactly the same thing. You know, White Christmas is about the weather and wishing each other a happy Christmas. You know, same with with that laundry list of images that, as you said, in Mel Torme's The Christmas Song. It's simply a bunch of lyrics that put you in that that place lyrically and make you think of those Christmas images that people hold so dear. We were talking about the inclusion of this holiday. Mel Torme, who I mentioned a moment ago, was Jewish. Irving Berlin, who wrote White Christmas, was Jewish. A lot of holiday songs were written by people who aren't Christian. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, and we could sit here and go on and on, were written by people who, for themselves for the most part, did not celebrate the holiday. You mentioned home being the number one subject, this thing of nostalgia. And the fact that these kinds of songs are so strong is really interesting because these songs are loved by people who are nostalgic for things they did not necessarily have. A lot of people don't have happy memories of Christmas. They you know, come from broken homes. They couldn't afford presents. Many people 
even today find the pressure of buying gifts not a fun thing. And yet Christmas songs are comforting in a way that's hard to explain. Right. And I think they all present the same idealized version of Christmas homecoming. You know, it's it, it doesn't matter what one's own reality was growing up. Christmas is a time or the, the holiday season is a time when people often return to the family home. You know, they see relatives that they haven't seen uh, for a long time, perhaps because everyone's got the same week off work. And uh, so it, it is the most universal theme of that holiday season, regardless of where you're coming from um, culturally or, or regarding faith, that you're um, that you're you're coming back to that, not only to that place, but also implicitly to that time. So we tell ourselves that maybe slightly romanticized story that you know all families get along at Christmas and we shower each other with gifts and we have a lovely time. Uh, and we, it's also a curiously analog experience. You know, people don't talk about, you know, playing on the PlayStation at Christmas. It's going back to a simpler time, which I suggest is why, uh, along with that early repertoire, the Bing Crosby being an example, that the, the time when a lot of nostalgic Christmas imagery comes from is a sort of mid 20th century period certainly in, in the songs that are targeted at, uh, at the U.S. and the U.K. market, which is the ones that I've, um, I've analyzed the most. We'll have more in a moment from musicologist Joe Bennett on how Christmas songs are written to make us love them so much in just a moment, right here on the Holiday Special from CBS News Radio. Welcome back to the Holiday Special from CBS News Radio. I'm Gil Gross, and we've been sitting with musicologist Joe Bennett from the Berkeley School of Music. So when we did the repertoire analysis of those top 78 Christmas songs, uh, one thing that we got out of it was a word cloud. So we put all of the lyrics into a big bucket and asked what were the most common nouns that appeared. Uh, and they were as follows. Snow, party, tree, Santa, love, home, and cold. So they're all kind of fairly neutral statements about the season and the coming together of families, which I, I think is one of the things that you know all pop music writers want to do. They, they want to be relatable and they want to be universal. And you can't get much more universal than those seasonal themes. We've spent a lot of time here talking about the content of the lyrics of these songs. Let's, let's talk about what there is musically, because you're a musicologist. What do these songs have in common? I mean, I imagine they're mostly in major keys because, you know, it's happy. What kinds of musical things do they have in common? Right. Well, in fact, that is one of the the first things people who study music theory um, kind of... It's, it's a simple rule of thumb in music theory that generally major keys are happier, minor keys are sad. I think a lot of people are familiar with that idea. Uh, in holiday music... That is turbocharged. In the repertoire we looked at, 95% of the repertoire was in a major key, which is a lot higher proportion than contemporary pop, which is leaning more and more toward minor keys, interestingly. 90% um, are in 4-4 time, which is not that remarkable because most popular music is. It's the most common time signature. Um, a few more of them have a, a swing beat. So rather than that, 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 that in the background, in the backing beat, you have a da-da-da-da-da-da-da, uh, sort of a shuffle beat, as some people call it. And that's more common in Christmas music that, historically than it is in popular music generally. 
Interesting. Okay, I've got to ask you, does Joe Bennett have a favorite Christmas song? I really do, actually, but um, I'm not sure how well it uh, it plays in, in America. It was a big hit in the UK in, I think, 1985. It's a song called Fairy Tale of New York by The Pogues, and, uh, The Pogues featuring Kirsty McCall. And the bells are ringing out for Christmas Day. And it's a, it's a very strange story. It's it's essentially a conversation between two drunks who are kind of down on their luck in New York. And the chorus is famously, the boys in the NYPD choir were singing Galway Bay and the bells are ringing out for Christmas Day. And it's just, uh, it, it's, it's a really delightful story and a very quirky uh, Christmas song. But in terms of songwriting craft, it's very hard not to stand in awe at the skill that went into writing White Christmas. It is a really remarkable bit of songwriting. You know, like the poetry of Robert Frost, which only when you analyze it do you realize that even though it sounds so simple, it's so difficult to do. If it was easy, everybody would be writing stuff like that. Irving Berlin's songs and songs like White Christmas are the same, deceptively simple. And this songwriting craft is just wonderful. And, and by the way, as a final note, in terms of your favorite Christmas song, I'm a huge Kirsty McCall fan, so that totally works for me. Joe Bennett is professor of musicology at the Berkeley School of Music. Joe, thank you so much, and Merry Christmas. Right back at you. Thank you. This is the holiday special from CBS News Radio. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.